This morning we're continuing our study of the first book of the Bible, the book of Genesis. If you want to make your way to Genesis chapter 1, it's probably on the first page of your Bible. We're spending a lot of time on Genesis chapter 1, and we'll probably spend a fair amount of time on Genesis chapter 2, and we'll probably spend a fair amount of time on Genesis chapter 3. Eventually, Lord willing, we'll pick the pace up. Much of Genesis is narrative or, or units uh, of story. Um, and I think we'll get through those units relatively quickly. But in these first chapters, uh, I've chosen to slow us way down. You're like, I know, John, seriously. Um, the reason is simple, at least I, I think it's simple. These chapters are arguably the most important chapters in the Bible. Because they're the foundation. They're the foundation that everything else in the Bible is built upon. Whether it's the covenant that God makes with Abraham, the, the dynasty of the kings of Israel, and of course the coming of the Lord Jesus Christ and his gospel and his church being built in the New Testament. All of that finds its foundation in Genesis 1, 2, and 3 where we learn basic realities, basic truths Um, such as God created everything (laughs) and that he made us, men and women, in his image and that we have rebelled against him and sinned. So we have God as creator, man is created and sinful all here. Without those truths laid down, the house uh, would crumble. In fact, I don't know that there would be a house. There wouldn't be a a storyline. There wouldn't be much of a storyline left if, if we weren't clear in our minds who God was, what he did, who we are in relation to him as image bearers and then also as rebels, as sinners. If, if we didn't know these basic, basic truths, then the gospel loses much of its meaning because the gospel says that there is a God in heaven who is holy and creator, that we are made in his image, and sinners, and in need of salvation. Um, So that's the first kind of bit of the gospel. But if you take Genesis 1, 2, and 3 away, you take that away. So we need Genesis 1, 2, and 3 to get us then, the next part of the gospel, to get us then to the cross, that the Son of God has come and lived the perfect life, the life that we should should have lived, so that everyone who simply calls out to Him in faith and turns away from their sins will be redeemed and made new and brought back into relationship with their creator. Do you see how these truths of Genesis 1, 2, and 3 are foundational to the gospel? I hope you do. I hope you do. The the gospel didn't start in Matthew. It didn't start when Jesus died on the cross. We have to get some of these truths firmly lodged in our minds and hearts. And I know who I'm talking to this morning. I know many of you are like, yeah, John, um, Yes, we get that. We've known these things. We've believed these things for a long time. Praise the Lord. But that may be true. But two things. Um, You are living with and around massive amounts of people who don't believe or even know these things. Who haven't heard, even haven't heard that there's a singular God. There's one God who created everything. Or that sin is the reason that we have problems in this world. There are people all around you who just don't know this stuff. And they need to be taught and 
and instructed in these things. And then there, the other reason I, I want to slow down here in these opening chapters is because there's actually a lot here in the text that we, we gloss over, that fills out our understanding of these basic truths I've just explained to you about God as creator and us as image bearers, etc. There are some things right here in the inspired text that the Holy Spirit seems us uh, to want us to know. And so we're slowing way down in Genesis 1, 2, and 3. I hope that's okay with you. I want us to look into the text of Genesis 1, 26 through 28 today. We're going to be in Genesis 1 this week, next week, maybe another week. Haven't decided yet. We'll see. We'll eventually get to Genesis 2, I assure you. But at the end of Genesis 1, we, uh, we see the sixth day of creation. As I've said, the sixth day of creation is the most important day of creation um, for a lot of reasons. The, Moses, the author, seems to think so because he spends twice as much time unpacking and teaching us what happened on the sixth day than he did on any of the other days. Then in chapter 2, he's going to come back around and tell us again in more detail, kind of give us a 3D version of what happened on the sixth day of creation. So what happens is so important to Moses in Genesis 1, the end of Genesis 1, that I want us to continue to linger here for a little while longer. We're going to do 26 through 28 today, verses 26 through 28, and hopefully 29 through 31 next week. The main idea of these last verses, as I said a few weeks ago, I guess two weeks ago, um, starting in verse 26 and following, is that God creates us in His image and after His likeness, meaning that God created us to rule over His creation and to relate to Him as Creator. We were made as rulers over His world and as those who relate to Him as God. Image bearer means that we, we represent God as rulers in this world. So image, verse 26, image of God is functional in nature, meaning that there's this horizontal aspect. We, we rule for God over the world. And then likeness, verse 26, is relational in nature. We bear the likeness of God. We aren't exactly like God, obviously. We're created, but we have a likeness of God, meaning we are able to relate back to God as our creator. We have spiritual capacities. We have a moral sense. We have a mind um, able to reason and discern truths. Obviously, sin has corrupted these things. But nonetheless, we were created with these capacities in the beginning, with a likeness to God, giving us the ability to relate to Him. So, you, friends, were created by God to know God and rule for God over God's creation. That's the main point of a couple weeks ago and this week. And I'm not going to linger there much longer because when I say that we were made to rule for God, you may think, well, that sounds fun. I've always wanted to be in charge of something, uh, but what does that mean? Well, the text gives us a lot of help. It actually tells us at least a few things about what ruling for God means, what our rule on the earth for God looks like. I'm going to give you two of these things today, and hopefully the third one next week. So, what does it mean to rule for God in the world? Well, in the text... We're going to see today, we're going to focus on today, it means exercising dominion over the animal kingdom and filling the earth. 
exercising dominion over the animal kingdom and filling the earth. Or as my sermon title says, ruling animals and making babies. <laughs> ruling animals and making babies. I will be focusing in on that second one, making babies, um, as it seems to be the mo more important. And I'll tell you why in a little bit. Next week, we'll focus in on another aspect of our rule on the earth. This idea in verse 20, <clears throat> 28 of subduing the earth. Subduing the earth. Today, exercising dominion over animals and filling the earth. That's where we're going. I don't often do this, but if someone could bring me some water, I will love you forever. I think Susie's on it, so you don't have to get up anyone. Sorry. Thank you so much. I've been sick all week, <coughs> and I'm trying to keep speaking for another 50 minutes. Amen? Maybe less. Hopefully less. Let's look at the text. Genesis 1. Verse 26 through 28. <clears throat> then God said, Let us make man in our image after our likeness. And let them have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over the livestock and over all the earth and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. And God blessed them. And God said to them, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it. And have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over every living thing that moves on the earth. First, we were created to rule the animal kingdom. One of the aspects of our rulership is ruling over the animal kingdom. As I said a couple weeks ago, image of God is something we are, not something we have. We are God's ruling representatives on the earth. But, but with that identity comes a function. Several things, as I've said, at least three. The one we'll start with is the function of exercising dominion over the creatures, the animal kingdom. And when I say animal, I know you science majors are like, well, do you mean mammals? Do you mean bugs? Do you mean fish? Do you mean birds? When I'm saying animal, I mean everything that's moving around the earth that's not a human, okay? Every kind of creature. So when I say animal kingdom, I mean everything that is not a human. And this is the first part. Interestingly, uh, this is made explicit in our text. And in a sense, this dominates the text I just read, doesn't it? Because it's said twice. Moses essentially repeats himself. The end of verse 26, notice again, let them have dominion. Where? Where's your dominion? over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over the livestock and over all the earth and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. And then the last part of verse 28, he says it again. Subdue the earth and have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over every living thing that moves on the earth. 
So what's immediately obvious in our text is that our rule is directly related to the animal kingdom. God assigned us as the rulers and keepers and tamers and protectors and preservers of all living creatures. We're God's governors over the animal kingdom. Our rule, however, isn't an autonomous rule. We rule on behalf of someone else. We're made in the image of God. We aren't God. This means that there are limits to our rule. We can't do whatever we want with God's property. Our rule comes with limits, not license. Just as kings of the past were expected to care about the welfare of their subjects, so God's kings and queens, namely you and I, must reflect God's character. So, we don't kill animals indiscriminately. I was hoping Elisha would hear this, but anyways, yesterday we were at my mom's house and these yellow jackets were buzzing around us and they weren't really bothering us. They were a bit of a nuisance, but Elisha, you know, understandably wanted to kill all of them. And I'm like, you know, they're not hurting us. We don't have to kill them. If they're on you or going to sting you, you know, that's fine. Take them out. One of the funny thing about this story is actually a few hours later after I, you know, my diatribe to Elisha about not killing them, I got stung by one. So um, that's, that, was, that was maybe the Lord teaching me a lesson. <clears throat> but uh, we don't kill indiscriminately. I tell my boys not to squash roly-polies just because they think it's fun. It's not nice to just kill God's creatures indiscriminately. We rule the world on behalf of a good and kind and wise God, our rule must reflect his character. This means that we aren't free to exploit or abuse or neglect or waste or ignore God's glorious creatures. This doesn't mean that we all need to become zookeepers or Dr. Doolittles or pet lovers or conservationists. It does mean, however, that PETA shouldn't be the only group who care about the well-being of animals. Socially liberal people shouldn't be the only ecologically minded people. It's actually the Christian tradition that provides the only stable foundation for the care of animals. Think of it. If, as the naturalistic, materialistic, Darwinistic, secular mindset says, if we're essentially the same as the animals, then why on earth should we care for them? Should we elevate them? Why should we take care of them if we essentially are them? We have a foundation for the care of animals. And I think often Christians minimize this or miss this. We have a responsibility to care for God's creatures. It doesn't mean you need to go get a dog this afternoon. <laughs> Maybe you do. I don't know. People ask me if I want a dog. I'm like, no way. I don't need any more responsibility. My kids are a little bit older. We'll get some animals. But we've got enough already. Animals are great. You don't have to have animals to you know, fulfill your rule as an as a, as a, as a image bearer on the earth. It does mean you need to think about your rule as an image bearer in terms of caring, not abusing, protecting, not, not neglecting. 
Christians should do what we can to promote the well-being of the creatures our Creator created. The Christian tradition provides the only stable foundation for the care of animals. Noah, after all, was the first conservationist, not Steve Irwin. Now, what I will say here is that we need to do this work without letting animals become our idols, without letting them consume our lives. It's safe to say that our culture has placed a higher value on dogs than on babies. And this is a tragic reversal of God's plan. God made us to rule animals, but many people are ruled by their animals, spending exorbitant amounts of money on animals and giving nothing or very little to charity or the church. This is a tragic reversal of what God has made us. Animals are good and beautiful gifts from God. They're a lot of fun. I don't own dogs, but I was running yesterday morning at my brother's place, and his two dogs came and ran with me, and it was just fun to have these creatures run for a few miles through through uh, the countryside. It was kind of cool. I don't usually get that because I don't have any animals. God did make us to enjoy animals. But if we're consumed with our pets, we need to remember that he made us to rule animals, not be ruled by them. We have to get the order right. And we need to remember that there are other aspects fundamental to our rule in the world. Taking care of animals, in other words, is not the only thing and probably not the most important thing about our rule. I say probably because the text isn't clear on this, but it it certainly seems as you read the rest of Genesis and the Pentateuch and the Bible, interestingly, the focus isn't on our domination of the earth or our subduing the earth. The focus is on our filling the earth, God's blessing through progeny through children, and what comes through them. So there seems to be an emphasis in Scripture that would warrant us being far more concerned with people than with pets, even though this text says we should care about animals. So we are created to rule the animal kingdom. I'm going to spend the rest of our time on the second thing I mentioned, that we are also created to rule by filling the earth. This is verse 28 again. Verse 28, God blessed them and God said to them, Be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. We're created to multiply. God made us to rule over animals and to multiply ourselves and fill the earth. We will rule as we fill. Part of God's basic plan for our lives is multiplication. You're like, John, I'm single. I can't do that. I'll come to that in a moment. Hang tight. I see you. I feel your pain. I get it. We'll come back to that. But I want to look at what this text most plainly says first. One of God's most basic intents for humanity is multiplication. The first part of verse 28 says, And God blessed them. This is very interesting. What kind of blessing did God give man? 
Well, the text makes it very clear what kind of blessing it was. It was the blessing of posterity. God blessed, back in verse 22, the sea creatures and the birds in the same way. So the first blessing in the Bible, first with the animals and then with man and woman, the first blessing in the Bible is the blessing of procreation. God wanted the creatures he made to continue to exist. So he blessed them by giving them the gift of ongoing life through self-propagation. Be fruitful, multiply, fill. These words are very clear in their intent. It means get together and make more of yourselves and fill up the earth. These words, though, be fruitful, multiply, fill, Interesting, he says it three times in three different ways. He's definitely trying to make a point here. Be fruitful, multiply, fill. They shouldn't necessarily be only seen as commands, though they are commands. They need to be seen as the blessing of God. In other words, God is saying to the human race, I bless you by making it possible for you to multiply yourself. You have to look at the text. And God blessed them. And God blessed them, but it's not an unambiguous blessing. And God blessed them, and then God said to them, here's the blessing, make more of yourselves. I want you to fill up the whole earth. I want there to be lots of you. And that's a wonderful blessing. The weightiness of what's happening here is seen in the fact that this is the only time God speaks directly to the creation. Notice, excuse me, verse 28. God blessed them, and God said, to them. There's personal address here. God has been speaking throughout the chapter on the other days of creation. And God said, let there be light. And God said, whatever. But here it says, and God said to them. God is speaking to man and woman. He's speaking personally, relationally. Humans are uniquely blessed by the creator as the first ones who get to hear his voice. And the first blessed thing that comes out of his mouth is the promise of fruitfulness. So while exercising dominion over the animals is good and important and right here in the text, the focus of Genesis, as I said a second ago, is on the blessing of fruitfulness, not on dominating animals or subduing the earth. This command, this be fruitful and multiply command, the implicit promise that's contained within it, um, that God will actually enable us to fulfill it, is repeated later to Noah after the flood. It's repeated several times to the patriarchs. On his deathbed, Jacob publicly declares that God has fulfilled his word here. Think about the genealogies that fill Genesis. The geneal genealogies which we generally skip over. Amen? True? Yeah. The genealogies are a fulfillment of this promise. There was indeed, there is indeed progeny and offspring generations upon generations of humans that are filling the earth. The genealogies tell us that God did indeed keep his word and allow humans to multiply themselves across the earth. So, in a stunning display of generosity, God shared the blessing of creation with us. God shared the blessing of creation with us, he gave his image bearers the ability to make more image bearers. He created us to be creators. He called us to rule and make more rulers. He made us to multiply and spread out his royal family so that his rule would indeed extend over all the earth. Now, 
I'm going to spend the rest of our time trying to explain how this text applies to, I hope, everyone in the room, wherever you are. <clears throat> Whether you're single or married, young or old, middle-aged, retired, working, man or woman, this blessing of God, these principles embedded in the text, the very first chapter of the, of the Bible, these, these principles indeed apply to all of us. But how? But how? I, I know what you're thinking. Again, John, I'm single. Or John, I'm old. John, I can't have any more babies. John, I don't want to have any more babies. <laughs> like, what does this mean for you? What does this mean? Does this mean that everyone should just start sleeping around with everybody they can and just make babies for as long as they can, for as many as they can? Is, this what that, is that what it means? No, of course not. So what does it mean? Well, let me give you two principles, and I'm going to try to apply these principles a couple ways, focusing on the first one, because the first one is the clear, clearly stated one in the text. Two ways we all can live this out. First, by making children in marriage. Second, by making disciples in the world. Making children in marriage, making disciples in the world. First, we can be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth as we make children in marriage. Notice verse 27. I haven't said much about 27. Interestingly, verse 27 is, is like an inspired footnote. It's the narrator speaking. God is speaking, verse 26, and then verse 28. Moses interjects some theological commentary in verse 27. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. Wow, two genders right there. I wish I could preach on, you know, the beauty of gender, but that's not for today. We might do that sometime soon, but that's not today. Male and female, two genders, only two. God made his image bearers as engendered. He assigned gender to all of his image bearers. Interestingly, after this theological footnote by the inspired writer Moses, he immediately moves to 28 and said, And God blessed them, the male and female, saying to them, Be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. So the point is that Moses is directly connecting um, God's blessing and God's saying, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth, uh, verse 28, to the end of verse 27, the making of two genders. Moses is connecting engendered humanity to a fruitful humanity. God made his image bearers as distinctly male or female so that they would fill the earth. This has to be done in the context of marriage, though. I did say this means making children in marriage. If you look at chapter 2, verse 18, the Lord God said to Adam, It is not good that the man should be alone. I will make him a helper fit for him. And then he creates Eve, the mother of all living. So we learn in the next chapter that this childbearing stuff, this multiplication stuff, this being fruitful stuff, is happening not just between any man and woman, but through man and woman brought together in covenant relationship, what we call marriage. So, that means one of the most basic purposes of marriage is having children. I'm going to stop down on this for a little while, if you'll allow me. Why? Because our culture emphatically doesn't believe this. And, and I'm not saying that like we're better or anything like that. We've just forgotten. We have 
We have no cultural memory anymore. The Judeo-Christian foundation is all but crumble or crumbling beneath our feet. Marriage, according to the Bible, is not about your personal happiness. It's meant ultimately to reflect the gospel. Ephesians 5. But I think we can argue penultimately it's meant to um, spread out the human race over the face of the earth. Marriage is meant to not only reflect the gospel, we're quick to jump over there as Christians, and that's good and right, but it's also meant to be the place where we procreate. The Bible says a lot more about our sexuality, no doubt, but this text that we're studying is unambiguous in saying that God gave us sexuality, He gave us gender, so that we would fill the earth with more of His image bearers. Having children, again, is one of the main purposes of marriage. Not the only purpose, but it's one of the main purposes of marriage. Let me state clearly that this, <clears throat> there's a lot of ways to apply this. I'm going to start with, with this one. Having children outside of marriage happens with an increasing frequency. It's, it's not the unforgivable sin, but it is also not the plan God made which is why it creates so much pain. It's not unforgivable. It, it never will never disqualify anyone from the mercy of Jesus Christ. But it is an increasing phenomenon, and we need to see these men and women who are raising babies by themselves <clears throat> as not disqualified from the mercy of God, but indeed in need of extra help. Our culture has increasingly minimized this truth that I'm talking about, having children in the context of marriage as part of marriage. Part of this goes back to the modern advent of various forms of birth control and the scourge of abortion across our land, having sex. As these things have happened and increasingly are happening, having sex and having children are no longer linked in our modern minds. Let me say that again. Having sex and having children are no longer linked in our modern minds. This wasn't always the case. <clears throat> Just a generation or two ago, we began to see, and now in our age, we see everywhere, the belief that sex is a basic right and need, and children are an optional add-on if and when desired. But in past ages, indeed for most of the history of humanity, having sex meant the possibility of having children. So, sex was more likely to be reserved for those wanting and willing to raise children. Obviously, there's always been sexual immorality. The Apostle Paul writes about this at length in his letters. But in general, sex was seen as linked up to children. We don't necessarily think that way in our culture. Two quick words. I want to say a word to cowardly men and to our church. Cowardly men who sleep with women who aren't their wives and then abandon them and their children. Abandoned, abandon them when what God designed to happen actually happens will one day answer for their actions. They need to be called to account. And as a church, we need to put on and clothe ourselves with compassion towards 
especially single mothers, because it seems to usually be single mothers who are left with the singular burden of raising these little ones. We need to step up and step in and step forward and do everything we can to provide for and support those who have the blessing of a baby without the protection and provision of a father. <clears throat> Making children outside of marriage is not unforgivable. It, it, is a, it is a reality and it's devastating. We need to step in and say what needs to be said and we need to step in and help as much as we can. And in so doing, we reflect the glory of the gospel. God's intent is for children to be the result of a union of man and woman in marriage. Having children in the context of marriage should ordinarily be pursued as a basic part of being married. Now, there are reasons why couples sometimes shouldn't have children biologically, such as putting the mother's life at risk. But ordinarily, ordinarily, married couples should plan to have children. The question is often raised, well, can a couple choose to not have children? It's a very tricky question. If you're asking that question, I'd encourage you to pray and talk to your elders. Some do choose that path. The reasons why you would choose that path are what's important. Why would you choose not to have children is the fundamental question. It's a, it's a question of motive and intent. The reasons for choosing to have children can be good. There are, I've heard of couples making this choice so that they can devote themselves fully to great commission ministry instead of having children. But if there are those who are choosing not to have kids because having kids is just hard, well then they need to ask God to help them see children as a blessing and not a burden. It has to be, again, we have to have this conversation at the level of motivation and heart's intent. Why might we not want to have children? It's good to surround yourself with godly counselors and much prayer as you think through these things. We need to base our decision-making process on the Word of God, and we need to understand that the Bible plainly says, as Stephanie read earlier, that children are a blessing from the Lord. Psalm 127, Behold, children are a heritage from the Lord, the fruit of the womb, a reward. Blessed is the man who fills his quiver with them. So as we approach this conversation, the first thing all of us need to do you're like, John, I'm never, I'm never going like, to ask the question, should I have children or not? If I get married, I want to have children. Great, praise the Lord. But what all of us need to do is put underneath our view of children what the Bible plainly says about children. Plainly says that they're a blessing from God, not a burden or a curse from God. We need to see children the way the Bible sees them, not the way our culture sees them. We all see kids kind of, we're all culturally, culturally located and we see things through cultural glasses. This became clear to me a few years ago when I was in Kenya and a Kenyan pastor told me that he'd been recently married and uh, they were already expecting their first child. I told him congratulations. I told him Susie and I at that time had, I guess, two children and uh, we had waited five years before we started having children because I was in school and uh, wasn't, I didn't work full time and I gave all these reasons. And then with a smile on his face, he gently said, 
That's how you do things in America, but that's not how we do things in Kenya. <laughs> and we had a good laugh about it. His point was simple. His point was that there's a cultural vision that's inherent to the way we all think about this. And we just need to own that and be honest about it. That our cultural lens often shapes our decision-making in profound ways. So we come back to the Bible and we learn that the Bible says kids are a blessing, not a burden. But we're also encouraged, be encouraged, brothers and sisters, that we aren't the first or the only or the last culture that will struggle to see children as a burden or seeing them as a burden rather than a blessing. We're not alone in this. We aren't the first ones to think this way. We won't be the last ones to think this way. Russell Moore, in his book, Adopted for Life, says that we all struggle with this kind of impulse. And he actually connects this kind of impulse to Pharaoh, Herod, and Planned Parenthood. Listen what he says. It's easy, he says, quote, It's easy to shake our heads in disgust at Pharaoh or Herod. Remember how they killed the babies? Pharaoh and Herod, they killed all the babies. Or Planned Parenthood, obviously, killing babies. He says, it's easy to shake our head at at Pharaoh, Herod, and Planned Parenthood. It's not as easy to see the ways in which we ourselves often have a Pharaoh-like view of children rather than a Christ-like view. What God calls a blessing, we often grumble at as a curse. And for the same reason those old kings did, because they disrupt our life plans. He goes on to say, children disrupt plans, and blessedly so. They might disrupt yours. It's easy to resent this disruption and lash out against it, perhaps not in murder, but in the anger that's the root of murder. End quote. I tell you, when I read those words, (laughs) some serious conviction came into my heart. Why do I get so agitated when babies cry, (laughs) when toddlers pout? When kids act like kids. Why do you get so agitated when kids act like kids? Why are we so insistent, insistent on our restaurants and our public spaces and our airplanes, our churches even, being kid-free? Why are we so prone to see kids as an inconvenient disruption of our lives? Why do we privately curse what God has publicly and loudly blessed? I tell you, is raising kids hard? It's absolutely the hardest thing I've ever done. There's no compare. Nothing activates my anger like the three blessings that live with Susie and I. Most nights, I'd rather put my kids in front of the TV than actually engage them. Shame on me. Shame on me. It's usually because I love my comfort more than I love my kids. Anything that gets in the way of my comfort, always, usually, usually, generally, Susie can back me up on this, brings out bad John. Brings out the worst part of me. Why? Because my mind and my heart have been shaped by a view that sees kids as a disruption of my life, not a blessing and a present from God to my life. 
what I'm saying is that married couples should ordinarily and joyfully pursue the blessed gift of having children. And I want to say a few things by way of qualification, because I know what some of you are thinking. You're thinking, well, John, you know, how many? When should I start? Do we just start right out of the gates as married people? I don't know. The Bible doesn't tell us. The Bible doesn't give us specific answers on those questions. There's freedom. What, again, I'm trying to do is lay a foundation in your mind and your heart about children themselves, what they are, and let you and your spouse discern what's best for your family with the Lord's leading. It's really interesting that many of us, and I know I've done this, will start comparing. Like, well, you know, we had kids sooner than they did. Or we have more kids than they do, and we start comparing and competing with our brothers and sisters in Christ. Shame on us. That's ridiculous. It's not a competition to see who can have the most kids. And you're not necessarily a more faithful Christian if you have five children instead of two. John and Idolette Calvin um, lost a son, had a son die in infancy. infancy. They had no other children together. Jonathan and Sarah Edwards had 11 children. Lord bless them. John Piper, five children. John Stott, single, no children. Who are we to say that any of of these folks were more spiritual, more faithful, more godly, or more whatever because they had more kids or less kids or whatever? God blesses through children, not through a certain number of children. So we need to stop the comparing and competing. It's not healthy. It's not good for the unity and love of the body of Christ. It does stand to reason, however, that our society's devaluing of children is one of the reasons our national birth birth rate continues to fall. I don't see those things as, as a coincidence. So may we as Christians stand against that tide and bless what God blesses. Single men and women. Let me say a quick word to you about this. I know many of you want to be married. Praise the Lord. As you consider marriage, also consider what your view on children is. And as especially you get towards engagement, you need to talk openly, openly and honestly and thoroughly with your girlfriend, boyfriend, fiance or whatever about your view of children. I've actually seen this, couples not being on the same page on this, um, bring division and separation into families, into couples, into marriages. So if you're on your way to getting married or want to get married, think carefully about children. Think about what you what you believe the Bible says and how it might apply to your life. Talk about that with your spouse. If there's some serious conflict there, then talk to your elders and talk to godly counselors. Get on the same page as much as you're able to before you get married. Children, again, the Bible says plainly that children are a main purpose for marriage. So, you're like, you're dating this person because they're really good looking and funny and smart. That's wonderful. That actually doesn't matter nearly as much as what they think about kids. What do they think about kids? What do they think about kids? 
There are many ways to multiply children in marriage, by the way. I've said that one of the ways we can fulfill this is by multiplying children in marriage. There are many ways to do that. Many couples will and do struggle to have children biologically. Infertility is one of the most painful things a couple, especially a wife, can walk through as it suffocates the hopes and dreams God put in her heart when she was a little girl. Susie and I have walked through that in a a season of our marriage. It is painful and hard. If it's you, don't walk that road alone. Reach out for help. Reach out for counsel. Reach out for prayer. You need not suffer alone. Many will hear what I'm preaching on and think that they're somehow inferior because they're not able to do this verse 28 stuff. They're not able to be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. Remember this, brothers and sisters. The same God who inspired that verse is the same God who reigns over your life. He's not confused about what he's doing and what he said. He knows exactly what he's doing. There's no need to feel like you're somehow less of a Christian or less of a human. You're not able to have kids or have more kids. Infertility is why lots of families choose to adopt children, to bring children into their families who were born to another couple. And that's okay. That's not wrong. Praise the Lord for those adoptions. But as I said in our training class last week, this shouldn't be the only or even the main reason families choose to adopt. There are multiple ways to multiply children in a marriage. Biologically is one way. Adoption is another way. The Apostle James' instructions in James 1.27 about visiting orphans wasn't qualified by if you're unable to get pregnant. He didn't give any qualifications. He said that every Christian will prove the realness of their religion if they care about orphans and widows, period. Does that mean everybody's going to adopt? No. Does it mean everyone's going to have a widow live in their home? No, it doesn't mean that. But it means something. It means something for you means something for all of us. means all of us, all the church is told to care about orphans. If we want our religion to be real, then it has to have this component to it, according to the Apostle James. Again, Russell Moore reminds us, if you want to read more on adoption, I put a couple of his books, Adopted for Life, out on the table. Grab one. Susie and I are reading it together. It's really wrecking our life in a good, good way. He says, all of us are called to be compassionate. All of us are called to remember the poor. All of us are called to remember the fatherless and the widows. That will look different in our different lives with the different situations and resources God has given us. But for all of us, there will be a judgment to test the genuineness of our faith. If your faith is real, you will feel something towards the orphan. And the widow. Adoption isn't for everyone. But God knows our hearts. God knows our hearts. I pray for the day when many in our church will open their hearts and their homes for the unwanted children of the world. Isn't that what he did for you? Didn't he open his hands and his heart and his home for you? So adoption becomes one of the clearest ways we can preach the gospel to this very dark world. 
I pray that many in our church would consider it, would do it. Not because they have to, but because they want to. Not to compare and compete and out-spiritual their friends. Just because they're compelled by a vision of the gospel that they found in scripture that leads them to want to give to an unwanted child what Christ has given to them. Namely, love and affection and a name, a new name and a place, a place. God, may it be, may it be, may it be in our, in our church. So some of you are still like, okay, John, I'm still waiting. I'm, I'm not able to have kids. I'm not able to adopt children. I'm single. I'm older. I'm widowed. I'm an empty nester. How on earth am I supposed to multiply and fill the earth? I think that we can apply this principle forward to the Great Commission. And here's why. Because in the Great Commission, Matthew 28, verse 19, Jesus says, Go therefore and make disciples of all nations. I don't find it coincidental that in Jesus' final command to his disciples, he gives them instructions to what? What does this mean? Make more, hey disciples, your disciples, you disciples make more disciples in all the earth. It's not a coincidence, I don't think, that in his very last command, he says, hey, multiply yourself over the entire earth. I think there's some echoes here from the, the, the reason we were created as stated in Genesis 1.28. We are supposed to be multiplying ourselves and filling the earth with more of Jesus' disciples. We can do this overseas. We can do this at home. In fact, if you're not doing it at home, please don't come and talk to me about wanting to do it overseas. It starts at home. If you're not multiplying yourself at home, you won't go live somewhere else and start doing it there. We multiply ourselves by pouring ourselves, pouring our lives out for the good of others. If our faith is real, then our faith will become more like a conduit, not a cul-de-sac. Our faith doesn't come to us and stop. Our faith comes to us and goes through us to the blessing of other people. A living faith is a faith that works hard to help others in their faith. A dead faith only cares about itself. So what can you do? You can start praying through the church directory. Members of this church, you can do that. Anyone can do that. You can pick a church member to start meeting with monthly over coffee or a meal to start asking them how they're doing and what the Lord is doing in their life and praying together. Anyone can do that. You can take a friend from your workplace or your school to lunch to initiate a gospel conversation. You can tell strangers about the gospel. You can tell your roommate about the gospel. You can help church members follow Jesus through regular meetings together. If you aren't doing this, if, if we aren't multiplying ourselves by helping other people follow Jesus, then we are disobeying Jesus. Make disciples of all nations. Multiply yourself and fill the earth with more image bearers. Namely, not just humans, but also Christians as we bear the image of the one who is the image of the invisible God. So, to summarize, I've said that we can multiply ourselves by having children in marriage or having spiritual children through disciple making. 
And every image bearer of God is created to exercise dominion by filling the earth, multiplying themselves and filling the earth, and as I said, exercising dominion through ruling over the animal kingdom. And what God has commanded, he will fulfill. This will happen. It is happening and will happen. The prophet Habakkuk says, The earth will be filled with the knowledge of the glory of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. The earth will be filled up with the image of God, with the knowledge of the glory of the Lord. It will happen and is happening. How does it come about? What started this? Well, of course, it started with creation and the, the, the flow of humanity across the globe. And it continues through the, the flow of the gospel across the globe as more and more Christians are made through disciple-making. All of this goes back, though, to verse 28, and this is where we'll, we'll land the plane. I want to bring this out again. Verse 28 is so important. God blessed them, and God said to them, Be fruitful, multiply, and fill the earth. God's blessing from the very beginning is linked to offspring. So from the very beginning, it was clear that God's blessing would come into the world through a fruitful womb. God would bless the world through a baby. It would be a baby born to a woman, we learn in Genesis 3 verse 15, who would crush the head of the serpent. And initiate a plan to bring us back home to the garden. Paul later tells us what this baby accomplished. When the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his son, born of woman, born under the law, to redeem those who were under the law, so that we might receive adoption as sons. So Jesus was born into the world to bless the world by taking the curse of the law upon himself. The curse of the law is if you sin, you must die. Jesus never sinned. But he died for sinners so that we don't have to die. So that when we do die physically, as we learned in training class this morning, our physical death is not the end but the beginning into eternal life. So that death becomes a door into everlasting life. Jesus took that curse and then gave us the blessing of redemption and adoption. Our adoption is the reason Jesus came and died. He died to save us from sins and bring us into his family. Friend, if you're here this morning and you're not yet a follower of Jesus Christ, call out to him for rescue. Stop trying to rescue yourself. It won't work. Admit that you're a lawbreaker. Believe his word. Confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord. Church members, may Jesus' generous love toward you be reflected in our church through the way we treat his creatures and in our joyful zeal to reproduce ourselves and fill the earth with his glory. Friends, God created us and Jesus saved us for this wonderful work of ruling the world through dominating the animals and through filling the earth with more image bearers. May God give us grace to do it. Let me pray for us. Father in heaven, you have set the bar so high for us. And we start by saying thank you. Thank you for revealing your will to us. Thank you for giving us 
a clear idea of what our lives are supposed to be about and not leaving us to be tossed to and fro by every wind of the culture and just try to figure things out for ourselves. Lord, help us to embrace the clear principles and teaching of your word about what it means to be human, what it means to be an image bearer. Help us to rule your creatures with careful and loving kindness. Help us to fill the earth with more image bearers. Protect us from the evil impulse of comparing ourselves with others who might have more or less children or no children or, or, or any of that. God, protect us. Help us all to live out the calling that you have given us. And give us a joyful embrace for life, for babies, for single moms and single dads. Lord, help us to be kind and compassionate to those who are hurting, those who need help. Help us to be zealous in multiplying ourselves spiritually and not just physically. Help us to find ways creative ways, courageous ways to make disciples and fill up the whole earth with the knowledge of the glory of the Lord. Help us, Father. We can't do any of this apart from your help. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.